All right, so by show of hands, whose life has turned out the way that they thought it would? Okay, yeah, me neither. Um, I must say that five-year-old Matthew would be very disappointed if he looked at the life of 27-year-old Matthew. For a five-year-old me, it was astronaut or bust. I wanted to go up in the rocket ship and leave my footprint on the moon and then parachute back down. There were two things that little five-year-old Matthew did not understand. One was that the maximum height requirement to fit into a spacesuit was six foot four, and I did not yet understand genetics. With a dad being six eight, nah, I should have known odds were slim. And so once, once that dream died, I said, all right, well, let's turn my biggest weakness into a strength. If my height is keeping me from doing something here, let's pursue the thing where being as tall as possible earns you more money. Let's go to the NBA. All right, average NBA player is six foot seven. I'm just, I'm one short. I'm a little undersized, but I I can play point guard, right? I look coordinated enough to do that. Um, Well, when when the Dukes and the Kentuckys of the world didn't start calling, I I had to reevaluate. Okay, well, I'll just, I'll go to the school down the road and I don't want to be a lawyer or a doctor. I don't know. Business sounds like a good background to have. I'll I'll just get a business degree and, and figure it out later. Come to my junior year, the Lord's been working on my heart for a while, and, and he calls me to himself and then calls me to the ministry. I think, all right, um, I'll finish this degree that I'm not really all that passionate about, and then I'll start over. I'll go back to school for another three and a half years. But, but God, after that, it's enough messing around. Like, it's time to get serious. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get a job at one of the hundreds of huge churches in Alabama and I'm going to have a a substantial and and steady income and paycheck and I'm going to be able to stay close at home, close to my family and all my friends and I'm going to, you know, take a few years to ease into a ministry position, just kind of get my feet wet and take my time and somewhere along the way I'll get married and we'll have two and a half kids and a dog and we'll buy the house in the nice quaint little section of the neighborhood with a lot of character that has the white picket fence and the front porch swing that I can wave to people as I sip my sweet iced tea. Here I am. Anybody have a similar story? You look back 50 or 20 years or even just five years or one year ago and you think this did not go how I thought it would in the words of the most honorable right holy reverend theologian Mike Tyson everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth (laughs) this passage that Jen read for us this morning among other things shows us how to interpret our lives and how to respond to God when our lives don't turn out how we thought that they would. And so we are at the end of the book of Acts in Acts 28 and concluding our series on Acts, the purpose and the power of the church. And in Acts 28, Paul is in Rome. That represents the fulfillment of Acts 1-8, There in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples, you will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. 
And so Paul, being in Rome, which is the, the cultural hub and center of the world at that time, that was going to be the launching point from which the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. And Paul, being in Rome, has been a long time coming. This has been in the works for years. In Acts 27, one chapter before, an angel appeared to Paul. He said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar in Rome, for God has granted this. Back in Acts 23, Jesus said to Paul, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In Acts 19, after the riots in Ephesus, read that after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Dechia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. If you read Paul's uh, introduction in the letter of Romans, his letter to the Christians in Rome, Paul sounds almost obsessed or infatuated with getting to Rome. It reads about as close as you're going to find to a high school love letter in the Bible. Paul said, For God as my witness... That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you. I have often intended to come to you thus far, but have been prevented. I am eager to preach the gospel to those of you in Rome. So God has wanted this. Paul has wanted this. Paul is finally in Rome. This has been a long time coming. But if you'll notice, if you've been here the last couple of months we skipped over a significant portion of Acts. We skipped basically from chapter 20 all the way to the end. And in those verses is Paul's journey of how he got to Rome. And it's a bit of a different journey than I'm sure Paul expected. Just as a recap, it started in Acts 21, as James and the other leaders of the Jerusalem Council said, Paul, you need to be a Jew to the Jews. So Paul went to the synagogue and he shared about Jesus there. Did not go over very well. Paul was beaten. He was harangued. He was almost flogged. He was thrown into barracks and thrown into prison. Then Paul's nephew overhears a plot to kill Paul. He's got death threats out for him. And so Paul flees Jerusalem and he goes to Caesarea. And he's under Roman authority in Caesarea, and he goes before the governor, Felix. Paul and Felix have some good conversations, but mostly for political reasons and some political leverage, Felix keeps Paul in custody for two years. Right? Don't let that be a thing that you hear and think, yeah, that sucks, but let's get on with the story. Paul sat in a prison cell for two years. All because the political powers that be wanted to use him as a bargaining chip. Well, a new governor, governor comes into town named Festus. So he, he inherits all the problems of the previous governor. So he inherits this problem prisoner, Paul, and he wants to, to clean the books. And so this governor recommends that Paul have a trial in Jerusalem. But Paul is very stubborn. He says, no, I, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. I want to go to Rome. Send me to Rome. Which is a good thing, because as it turns out, there was another plot to kill Paul. Different story. So Festus sends a request all the way up the chain of command 
to Caesar in Rome. So, so Paul has finally got his ticket. He is finally being allowed to go to Rome. He can get on the boat. But of course, it's not going to be easy. They get caught in a storm. And for 14 days, two weeks, Paul and the other sailors have no control over the ship. They cannot control where they are going, so they eventually run into a reef. The ship starts to break down, and Paul has to grab onto some driftwood and doggy paddle to shore. He has no idea where he is, but he later finds out he's on Malta, the island of Malta. So you have Italy here is the boot, which is kicking the soccer ball, which is Sicily. Just about 50 miles south is a very small island of Malta. So Paul swims to shore, and he starts to build a campfire, and he's digging around in the woods, you know, trying to gather some firewood, and turns out a a snake jumps out and bites him on the hand. Just welcome to Malta. And it was winter, so they couldn't go anywhere, so he had to stay there for three more months. And after three months of a cold, hard winter, Paul is finally able to go to Rome. Now, If you had asked Paul all the way back in Acts 21 to write out his travel itinerary to get to Rome, I doubt that it would have included anything of what actually happened. Paul must have thought, God wants me to go to Rome. He's made that very clear. I want to go to Rome. This is great. My will and God's will align. This should be a pretty easy journey, right? I should just be able to go down to the dock, order one uh, God-ordained fast-pass quick trip to Rome. I should be able to be there by the end of the week. Two weeks tops. But instead of a quick, direct, easy journey, instead God used justice and injustices. God used Jews and Gentiles, Roman law and cowardly Roman officials. God used Paul's citizenship and Paul's nephew. God used a dream and a kind centurion. God used a sea storm and a shipwreck, and he used a snake bite. God even used Paul himself as Paul hangs on to a piece of driftwood and doggy paddles to shore. So when we look at this broad, sweeping, circuitous, roundabout journey, I think we have to ask the question, God, why? God, you wanted him to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome. Why would you send him down all these rabbit trails? Why would you have Paul just sit in a cell doing nothing for two years? Why would you include so much suffering and confusion and doubt? God, why would you do that? I think there are a lot of smaller Lessons that God wanted to teach Paul. I'm sure God wanted to teach Paul some, some humility and, and some wisdom, just trying to get it through Paul's head that God is God and he is not. But ultimately, I think the, the big lesson that God wanted to teach Paul through all of this is that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, no matter what God sends your way, you always need to be sharing the gospel. If there is one commonality that each of the rabbit holes and roundabouts and delays and sufferings, if there's one commonality that each of these things have, it is that wherever Paul was, and no matter what happened to him, he was telling people about Jesus. 
Just listen to the people Paul was able to speak to. He preached to the crowd in Jerusalem. He preached to the Sanhedrin. He preached to the tribunal. He preached to Felix, Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice. He preached to his jailers, and he preached to his fellow sailors. So when we kind of take a step back and look at Paul's odd, very long journey through that macro lens, what we can see is that God did not make a mistake. God didn't mess up and forget about Paul, but God had a purpose for Paul in that entire journey. God had sovereignly ordained hundreds and thousands of opportunities for Paul to tell people about Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, when you get punched in the mouth, don't forget the game plan. When your life doesn't go the way that you thought it would, when you thought you'd be married by now, when you thought you'd be married to this kind of person, but it turns out they're actually this way, when you thought you'd have kids by now, you thought you'd be at this point in your career by now, or you thought that your kids would turn out this kind of way, or when you thought that you wouldn't deal with health problems until you're 75 years old, and those things actually creep up a lot sooner. No, no matter what it is, no matter how large the gap is between what you thought your life would be like and what actually happens, don't forget the game plan. Remember that God has a purpose for you, no matter where you are, and that he is going to use you there for gospel opportunities. As a pastor, a very common question that I get, a common conversation that I have is, how do I know what God's will for my life is? I have all of these decisions sitting before me. How do I know what God wants me to do? I think a lot like last week as Mark talked to us about gospel-centered parenting and he showed us that Scripture actually doesn't have a ton to say specifically about parenting itself. Rather, Scripture just gives us a lot of overarching, broad guidelines that we can then apply to parenting. I think finding God's will is, is very similar. If there was a verse that told you where to go to school, who to marry, what job to take, where you should live, I guarantee you would have heard about it by now. There would be a million books written about it by now. Personally, I think the best verse on finding God's will is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. There Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Which, I, that, that's so interesting to me. Paul is almost being flippant. Eat, drink, whatever. Do it to the glory of God. Sleep, travel, whatever. Do it to the glory of God. Stay single, get married, have kids, foster, whatever. Do it to the glory of God. The what of those decisions isn't the most important thing. The most important thing is the why. Why do you do anything that you do? Meaning that we need to always take stock of our lives and ask ourselves if we are making decisions with the ultimate goal in mind. Is my life centered around bringing glory to God and looking for opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus? And so if you are a student... 
than be a student to the glory of God. Work very hard in your classes and work to get marketable skills and a marketable degree so that you can then go and share the gospel. Are you single? Then be single to the glory of God. Be single in a way that shows that all of your hope, all of your identity, and all of your fulfillment does not rest in a potential future spouse. Show that your sufficiency is in Christ. Paul actually recommended in 1 Corinthians, he says, I wish that everybody were like me. Those married people, they're so worried about pleasing their spouse, which is a good thing, but they're so concerned with that. Me, I don't have to worry about any of that. I can move tomorrow. I can just go and I can stay out until 2 a.m. with all of my unbelieving friends. I can use that freedom and that flexibility that singleness gives me to share the gospel. Are you married? Then be married to the glory of God. Also, show that all of your hope, identity, and fulfillment does not rest in one person other than Jesus. And work very hard to make sure that your marriage portrays and reflects the gospel of Christ's love for the church. Do you have kids? Are you a parent? Then be a parent for the glory of God. Raise up and train your child in the way that they should go in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Discipline them because you love them and lavish them and shower them with grace and love and affection. Show them the love of the Heavenly Father. One of the many reasons that Lauren and I, Lauren and I want to have kids is because uh, kids give you incredible access to people in the community. All right, my, our pastor in Birmingham would say, you can't go to a park and bring your kid or your dog and keep from having a conversation. Okay, especially here in the suburbs. Ooh, we love talking about our kids. Our kids, that is where it's at. We can talk about that all day long. So parents... Use your kids. Use your kids as an opportunity for the inroads that they can get you in your, into your community. For your sports team, your schools, your co-op, whatever it is. Parent and use your kids to the glory of God. Are you sick? And are you suffering? Then be sick and suffer to the glory of God. Show that your hope is not in this broken and fallen world in your broken and temporary body. Show that your, your hope and that your security is found in the glory of Christ and that that glory, our, our present sufferings can't even hold a candle to that. So suffer well to the glory of God. No matter what happened to Paul, no matter where he was or wherever life took him, whether he was in full-blown prison or house arrest or in the synagogues or the marketplace or working on a floating ship or paddling for his life on a broken-down ship, Paul was always looking for gospel opportunities. So Paul is preaching every chance that he gets on his way to Rome, and when he finally makes it to Rome here in Acts 28, nothing has changed. If he's got an audience, boy's going to preach. So we pick up in verse 23. And then we read, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing between themselves, they departed 
after Paul had made one statement. So we'll stop right there. So we don't know exactly what Paul had said. We'd, he'd been preaching from sun up to sundown, and we don't know everything that he said, but I think this is a sermon Paul has probably given at least a hundred times. He's preaching from the law of Moses and from the prophets, like showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those. I mean, that is just Paul's bread and butter. Like, he, he could give this sermon in his sleep. Which, just a little housekeeping, uh, after this week and after next week, we are actually going to start a framework series where we are looking at some of the, the key passages and figures in the Old Testament showing how they point to and are fulfilled in Christ. We're basically going to do like a 12-week series on what Paul preached here, showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. So that, that's what Paul was preaching that day. And he got a, a pretty typical response. Verse 24 says, Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. So, you know, it, the same thing that happens every time the gospel is presented. Some people believe, some people don't. It's, you know, pretty par for the course, just a normal Sunday. Everything was just normal until Paul made that one statement. Now, sometimes in everybody's life, we all need a get-back coach. Now, the get-back coach is the coach who doesn't, you know, have really any X's and O's responsibilities of coaching. Their only job is when things get heated and people start to lose their tempers and rush out onto the field, the get-back coach is the one saying, no, 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 whoa, 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 get back. We're not going to do that. Or they're the political handler who, when the politician kind of starts to veer off course in the speech, they're the ones jumping up and down saying, hey, whoa, whoa, let's stick to the note cards, buddy. Let's, that was not in the script. Get back. If Paul had had a get-back coach, he would have been going nuts, jumping up and down in the back of the room, speaking into the earpiece, saying, oh, Paul, like some people have come to faith. Let's just let's count that as a win. Let's start playing the instrumental piano, soft music, say the nice-sounding closing prayer, and let's just go home without rustling any more feathers. But Paul has one more point that he wants to make. He wants to conclude with a quote from Isaiah chapter 6. And if you're familiar with Isaiah chapter 6, he does not quote from any of the fun parts of that passage. He doesn't talk about the majesty of God as the train of his robe fills the temple. He doesn't talk about the holiness of God as the angels cry out to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. He doesn't even talk about Isaiah's willingness to answer the missionary call when God says, whom shall I send on my behalf? And Isaiah jumps up and down and says, here I am, send me. Paul quotes from the verses right after that. He says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Here's the quote. Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, 
and I would heal them. So what's happening in that passage is Isaiah has volunteered to go. And before he goes, it's as if God pulls him aside and says, Isaiah, I need you to know what kind of ministry you're going to have. You are going to have a very frustrating and unfruitful ministry. You're going to preach, you're going to lay down your life, and you're going to pour your soul out. They're going to see, but not perceive. They will hear, but they will not understand. You are going to preach to cold, hard, dull, and dead hearts. And so to wrap up his sermon and to wrap up the book of Acts, Paul wraps up by saying, those cold, hard, dull, and dead hearts that Isaiah preached to, that's you. How's that for an altar call? I don't know how well Paul would have done in preaching class. And Paul would have been familiar with Jesus' use of this Isaiah quotation. Jesus loved to quote this passage. He quoted it in every single one of the gospel accounts. And Jesus' favorite time to use this quote was after he had just given the parable of the sower. And so real quick, the parable of the sower goes like this. Jesus starts out by saying, listen. Listen up. Use your ears. Listen. Draws attention to our ears. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and one hundredfold. He who has ears, let him hear. So this is a parable in which the depth and the quality of soil is compared to the receptivity of the human heart towards Jesus. Sometimes the gospel seed is laid down and a bird takes it away. doesn't even have a chance. Sometimes the gospel seed is put down and it falls on the rocks and never even takes root. Sometimes the gospel seed is planted and it's planted in very thin soil. And so it doesn't, very, it doesn't take root very well, so it springs up like a weed, but as soon as any you know, heat or wind or rain or trial or temptation comes, it flops. But sometimes a heart is soft and open and like good healthy soil to receive the gospel. So it takes root and it grows up strong and it yields fruit and begins to reproduce itself. That, that's the parable. And I love the last line of the parable. It's so weird to me. Jesus says, if you have ears, the one who has ears, let him hear. Because that's so interesting because, you know, except for very rare cases where people are born with a birth defect or or a a defect, everybody has ears. Everybody has a pair of ears sitting on the side of their head. But Jesus says, if you have ears. So you can't have ears while not having ears. Which I think means that there is a 
physical ear and there is a spiritual ear. Your physical ears are on the side of your head. Spiritual ears are in the heart. Physical ears are for hearing. Spiritual ears are for understanding. So how do you know what kind of ears you have? How do you know if you have physical ears or if you have spiritual ears? I think the best way to answer that question is to ask yourself, how does your heart respond to Jesus? How does your heart respond to Jesus? Paul had been preaching all day from sunup to sundown, and he'd been teaching about Jesus from the law and from the prophets. In fact, if, um, if you go back to the end of Luke, Luke 24, there's got to be a connection here. Luke both wrote both Luke and Acts, and both books end with Luke drawing attention to how our hearts respond to Jesus. And in Luke 24, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. And he's speaking with his two disciples. And as they were on the road, on their walk, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus and Paul were preaching the exact same sermon. From the law of Moses and from the prophets, showing how they all pointed to Jesus. And later, as those two disciples were discussing and processing everything that they had heard, they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? Did not our hearts burn? Like, yeah, the Bible neurons in my brain were on fire because of all the connections I was seeing with Jesus in the Old Testament, but more than that, my heart was on fire. I was seeing the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the holiness and the worthiness of Jesus, and my heart melted. I, I couldn't stand there unchanged. I was a puddle, and my heart had never been more open and receptive to who Jesus was. That is how someone with spiritual ears responds to Jesus. By just magnifying and glorifying in your soul and the core of your being simply for who Jesus is. Now, in a room this size, with this many people, we are bound to have people who fall into this category. The category of people who see, but do not perceive. People who hear, but do not understand. So maybe you've been coming to church your entire life. You've heard more sermons and more gospel presentations than you ever care to remember. Maybe you come just out of habit, or because your parents come, or because your friends come. You're just culturally conditioned to, you want the status that going to church gives you, just your reputation needs a little sprinkling in of church going, and you come and week after week and year after year, you sing about Jesus, you hear about Jesus, you taste about Jesus, you see Jesus and the gospel portrayed in all the lives around you, and you just, yep, 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 got it, moving on. But you have never had that Emmaus Road kind of moment.
you have never had that eye-melting, heart-melting, all-consuming, heart-burning passion because you have seen Jesus. If you have, then just pray for the Spirit to show you more. Jesus is an eternally inexhaustible fountain of glory. We are going to spend the rest of eternity learning more and just reveling in the glory of God. But if you've never had that moment, I would encourage you to Pick one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and just spend a month reading that book as many times as you possibly can. Immerse yourself with Jesus. Spend as much time as you possibly can with him. Um, I don't think I'll ever do like an old-fashioned altar call, or, you know, I see that hand, but if you have never had that moment, I would love to speak with you. We, we, everybody on leadership and who's leading a gospel community, we would love to talk with you about Jesus. Notice, Paul ends kind of abruptly. Verse 29 says, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul's saying, All right, Romans, your time's up. You've heard it over and over and over, but we're moving on. So do not waste the opportunity that you have right now. Author of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That's our goal, is we want to put Jesus on display as big and as clearly as we can, and then we want to let the Holy Spirit do what he does best, and that is to open our eyes and open our hearts that we may see Jesus and that our hearts would melt and that we would believe in him. So towards that end, let me pray for us. Lord, we know and we confess that salvation and faith is a supernatural act. God, we cannot do it. And so we ask that you would do what only you can. Pray that by your spirit you would show us Jesus either for the one millionth time or for the first time. Take away our cultural blinders, our apathy, our sin. Show us Jesus. Make him bigger and more glorious to us than anything that this world has to offer. Pray these things in his name. Amen.